Man, you're getting killed out there. Tell me about it. I feel like Rocky after 15 rounds with Apollo Creed. Speaking of Rocky, did you know that Sylvester Stallone wrote the first draft of the movie in only three days? Did you know that Sylvester Stallone permanently flattened out his knuckles from punching the side of beef? What about Burgess Meredith? He had lived his line in the audition, which landed him the role of Mickey. Or that a destitute Sylvester Stallone turned down $350,000 because the studio didn't want him starring in it? Well, you can find this out and much, much more by listening to Rocky Minute, the fan podcast that covers the Rocky movies one minute at a time. You can find us on DuelingGenre.com. Now get back out there and knock this bum out. Dueling Genre. everyone, and welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a Greek character in a great story. I'm Joe Dorowski. And I'm Todd Mack. And this week we are discussing characters from two short stories. We'll be talking about the narrator from The Yellow Wallpaper, and also we'll be discussing Emilio from The Man Who Buried Himself. <laughs> and yes, that was the correct title of that story. <laughs> <laughs> Such a good title. It is a translation. Todd, would you like to give us the original title with proper Spanish accent? It's called El Que Se Enterro. And we're looking at uh, the translation done by Emily Davis, who's my friend. And, uh, and we'll have a, a, a link in show notes where you can read it in English. Super good story. I imagine, I, I read the English translation, uh, but I imagine there's a lot of fun um, wordplay in Spanish that's hard to translate into English. Yeah, we'll maybe talk about that in a little bit. And uh, this one is not a patron uh, request. We have a patron request for a novel, but we needed a little more time to be able to work through it. So kind of at the last minute, we chose these two short stories. Uh, I chose The Yellow Wallpaper. It's a a text I teach in my American Lit class, and I always love this one. And Todd, you suggested The Man Who Buried Himself. And uh, how are you familiar with that one? Uh, it was recommended to me by um, Dale Pratt, who's a professor of Spanish at BYU. Uh, when I was, I can't remember what class I was teaching. It was probably an intro to lit class. So I've taught it uh, numerous times at this point. It's one of my favorite short stories to teach. And it's just, it's so Spanish and it's so good. <laughs> uh, there's actually a lot of overlap between these two uh, that we'll get to. So The Yellow Wallpaper is an 1892 story. That was written by Charlotte Perkins Gilman. I've always seen it listed as 1892, but when I was looking up stuff today, a lot of sites had it listed as an 1899 story. So we'll say somewhere in the 1890s, this story was published. And it tells the story of a woman who suffers a break from reality as she convalesces alone in a room in a Gothic mansion. And The Man Who Buried Himself is a 1908 short story by Miguel de Unamuno that tells the story of a man who sees a doppelganger visit him Then he dies and his consciousness moves to the doppelganger's body and he buries his own dead body that his consciousness just vacated. So the stories are so good. (laughs) (laughs) The cool thing about this is that we were like, oh, we could do some short stories. And I said, yeah, we've never done Unamuno. We should do El Casentero. And then you said, oh, yeah, I like this one that's called The Yellow Wallpaper. And then we, we read them today and they're eerily similar. Yes, there is a lot of overlap. If you like doppelgangers, well, you enjoyed our discussion last week about the prestige, and you're going to enjoy our discussion this week about these two short stories. Yeah. Um, these are a little late for the like the height of what's considered the gothic movement, but there's a lot of garth- gothic romanticism that's still lingering uh, in, in both these short stories, and I love gothic romanticism. Yeah. All right, a little bit of trivia about these. Um, Charlotte Perkins Gilman is an American writer who lived from 1860 to 1935. And remember those dates. They line up pretty closely (laughs) with Unamuno. And she wrote short stories, essays, poetry, and gave lectures all over the world. Remember those things that she did because it lines up pretty well with Unamuno, actually. And um, the lectures that she gave all over the world, that particularly happened after she published a book called Women and Economics in, I think, 1898. And that book looked at many of the inequities with which women were treated at the time. Is that inequities or iniquities? (laughs) inequities <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> unequal treatment <laughs> that's what i'm going for there 
Uh, though, depending on your moral view of such things, perhaps iniquities. <laughs> so Charlotte Perkins Gilman uh, wrote the story as a semi-autobiographical account of the treatment she received after the birth of her child and her experience with what we would now identify as postpartum depression. In fact, the name of the doctor who treated her, who she loathed, um, is he's name dropped in the short story. <laughs> Someone who like the, the narrator gets threatened that she's going to have to go visit him if she doesn't get pull herself together. The Yellow Wallpaper is considered an early feminist text in American literature, and it definitely has some pretty harsh implicit condemnations of the way women's physical and mental health was treated in the late 1800s. And Gilman um, explicitly said that the real purpose of the story, this is the quote, quote, the real purpose of the story was to reach Dr. S. Weir Mitchell and convince him of the error of his ways, close quote. Uh, Dr. Mitchell treated Gilman and prohibited her from writing anything at all and insisted that she only have two hours of light mental stimulation during a day, which um, that's that's not much. (laughs) Yeah. That's a lot of sitting around. Okay, uh, a little bit of trivia about Miguel de Unamuno and Todd, feel free to jump in as this is more your area of expertise. Um, He was a Spanish Basque classics professor who lived from 1864 to 1936. So their lives pretty much overlapped. She was 1860 to 35. He's 64 to 36. He also wrote a bit on the side. He wrote essays, plays, poems, short stories, and novels. And things in Spain in this era could get... I like that. He wrote a bit on the side. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. A bit of anything he wanted to. Uh A bit of everything. Things in Spain in this era could get a little bit political. Maybe you can touch on this stuff. <laughs> uh, so much so that he lived in exile from 1924 to 1930 because of some of his political views. And the house where he lived on one of the Canary Islands is now a museum. And then uh, he returned to Spain in 1930. And things, turns out, were still a little bit political. And he picked a philosophical fight with a Spanish general. And that fight ended up with Unamuno under house arrest until his death later that year. Do you want to touch anything? Uh, touch on anything about the politics of Spain at this era? Well, I, 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 so Unamuno is. Um, I mean, he's without doubt be, next to Cervantes. So, if you're going to make a list of the greatest Spanish writers of all time, Miguel de Cervantes, of course, is number one by uh, you know a mile. A, a thousand miles, a million miles. <laughs> He's the greatest writer of all time. I mean, the, the Don Quixote is the greatest book ever written. Full stop. That's a that's an objective statement. <laughs> no one, no one can possibly debate this, <laughs> right? Uh, Step aside, Shakespeare. <laughs> <laughs> um, but Unamuno is certainly. I mean, if you're going to say put three names behind Cervantes, there's no way that Unamuno's name does not go on the list. And he's probably second behind Cervantes. I mean, he's just uh, a monster in Spanish literature. Um, But he's also quite controversial because um, he... uh, So initially, the the most interesting war in Spain is uh, the Spanish Civil War that happens. uh, It begins in 1936. He initially backed um, the rebels who were... Uh, kind of right-wing um, uh, generals. It was a military coup. Uh, and Unamuno was not excited about some of the liberal changes that were happening uh, under this democratically elected liberal government. And he initially thought, well, maybe these um, generals will come in and sort of just restore order. Um, and then it became apparent to him that that wasn't going to happen. Um, but he's he's been sort of marred. Uh, I mean, his name has been kind of... Um, marred because of his initial backing of the of the rebels but there are two things about unamuno that are important one is um he had a son who was very ill for a very long time and unamuno suffered through his son's sickness uh he lived until he was six i believe and uh it caused just a huge crisis of faith in unamuno and uh there's just there's a lot of tension inside of him uh, that stems from this idea that um, I mean you can imagine your son essentially dying in your arms and praying and saying God please <laughs> I will do anything take me but but don't 
don't let this happen. This thing that I, I feel like is maybe inevitable. Um, and then the son dies and Unamuno looks into heaven and he, and he kind of shakes his fist and he says, there is no way, there is no way that, that there is a God out there who would, who would allow this to happen. And at the same time, in the very same breath, he says, and yet I cannot deny the existence of God. And like this tension, it creates um, a lot of the motivation behind much of Unamuno's writing. Um, there's this, uh, and I, I think it comes out in the story that, w- that we'll read today, but there's this sense of wonder and mystery about the universe. Um, and, and definitely like a, a strong romantic strain, but also uh, he was not anti-knowledge or anti-science or any of these things. In fact, um, this philosophical fight that you mentioned at the end uh, of his life during the Spanish Civil War, he he was the um, he was at the University of Salamanca, and uh, a bunch of uh, Francisco Franco's soldiers were there, and they were having this kind of rally, and especially this um, this uh, general named Miguel Astray, uh, who was in charge of sort of like special forces, you could say, um, and he had this eye patch, and he stood up and he gave this speech in which he said, "Viva la muerte!" So long live death, long live death. Um, and Unamuno stood up and he said, this is the temple of knowledge and I am the high priest. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, uh, Estray did not like this. Um, Unamuno was ex- escorted out of the building by actually, um, Franco's wife's, uh, like his, his wife was there and she escorted Unamuno out of the building so that he wouldn't get, uh, Probably, I mean, I don't know what would have happened to him, but he was escorted out of the building and into house arrest and then died shortly after. Kind of, it's understood as sort of just sad about the, the state of things. Um, so that's <laughs> Unamuno. He's he's just an amazing uh, kind of complicated uh, figure, but the quality of his writing is totally undeniable. And um, he wrote some of the some of the best things to come out of spain since the spanish golden age i had never read any unamuno before uh the short story and again i read the translation uh today but i just loved it it was so great um and there's something uh, i guess what we could say so this is, but there's something really special about uh a perfect short story that you can just read in one sitting and everything's there and it's all contained that's really enjoyable edgar Allan poe yep uh said like he hated long fiction he said everything should be a short story length or shorter save it, save it andrew it's on our notes for discussion oh, okay <laughs> yeah poe's theory of composition is bullet point oh. number two in my discussion I his theory of composition. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right well before we get to the longer synopses of these two short stories we want to thank each and every one of you for listening and we would especially like to thank those of you who support us on patreon if you would like to support us financially, we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonists and support our show with at least $1 per month. All supporters on Patreon at any level receive access to our special quick casts, which are shorter episodes in which we break down newly released films and trailers and also give updates on this year's fantasy box office, which thus far Black Panther has won the fantasy <laughs> box office. <laughs> Black Panther has won this year and next year. I mean, <laughs> it's already out uh, outperformed every film we had in last year's fantasy box office. So, uh, and any patrons who want to support us with $5 per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss. And now we will go on uh, to these two synopses. We're going to go in uh, chronological order. So yellow wallpaper first, and then we'll talk about the man or Todd will summarize the man who buried himself. Here's the long synopsis of The Yellow Wallpaper. The Yellow Wallpaper is a short story written as journal entries, mostly. It gets a little ambiguous at the very end (laughs) as to how that would be a journal entry. But uh, we never really learn the narrator's name. The story begins by revealing that the narrator, who is clearly a woman who has recently given birth, um, that she has to write in a journal in secret. And we're reading her secret journal entries. She recently had a baby and she and her husband have rented what is described as a colonial mansion, a hereditary estate or a haunted house. Take your pick of those three. Uh, (laughs) I know which one I would not pick. (laughs) Uh, They've rented the place for her to convalesce in. And also it is for the family to stay at while uh, their home is under repair. 
She mentions that her husband seems to think that she is making too much of her illness and she is not a fan of the room where she has been put in this gothic haunted mansion. Uh, It has bars on the windows and a yellow wallpaper that she finds unattractive that has a weird pattern on it. We learn that she's been ordered to avoid any stimulating activity to allow her time to heal, but she longs to do, you know, stimulating things. Uh, her husband's sister is watching their new child most that's of not the day. A euf- that's not a euphemism. No, I mean, she, she really just active. wants to do it. She, just, she, just, she just wants to write. <laughs> yeah, she wants to be able to write. She wants to be able to see people have conversations. Walk around the ground more. Yeah, uh, yeah I realize it sounded like a euphemism right as I was saying it, but it's not. <laughs> Um, her husband's sister is watching their new child most of the day every day and the narrator is becoming more fixated on the wallpaper in this room she's always had an active imagination even when she was a child and now she begins to imagine people walking around the grounds of the estate as she looks out through the barred windows weeks pass and the narrator's only form of entertainment is trying to trace and interpret the pattern on the yellow wallpaper which that is a level of boredom, I hope. I never have to endure for days on end. Uh, She begins to see a hidden pattern underneath the primary pattern. She eventually realizes that the sub-pattern is the shape of a woman who is trapped behind the bars of the main pattern on the yellow wallpaper. Soon, she is full-on obsessed with this wallpaper and the woman in the wallpaper and the smell of the wallpaper, which seems to follow her around. And she sees a smudged line on the lower part of the wallpaper as though something has been rubbed against it, um, like continually against the bottom of this wallpaper uh, all around the room. And she does try, though, to keep her obsession a secret from her husband and her sister-in-law. More time passes, and now the narrator sees the woman trying to break out of the cage of the main pattern. The woman shakes the wallpaper at night and crawls around in it during the day, trying to find a way out. And as the light changes, we get descriptions of the different things that the woman inside of the wallpaper is doing. And eventually, determined to help the woman escape, the narrator locks the door and throws the key away and tears the wallpaper down, trying to free the woman. All day long, she tears at the walls and bites the furniture and then ends up crawling around the room again and again, her shoulder rubbing against the smudge that she had noticed before. Um, and she is now convinced that she is the woman and that she has escaped from the wallpaper. Eventually, her husband gets into the room, and when he sees what his wife is doing, he faints, and the narrator now crawls over his body each time she circles the room with her shoulder rubbing against the wall. The end. (laughs) This gave me chills. (laughs) And listeners, you should go read this. It'll take you 15, 20 minutes tops. You know, this is a short story. Yeah, I, I mean, I reread it, but I did glance. There are a few different LibriVox podcast versions that are read aloud that I think all of them were less than half an hour um, as well. Yeah, I think it depends on uh, how sleepy you are. If you're as sleepy as I was when I was trying to read this and reading those descriptions of the wallpaper, it may take you a little longer to get through it <laughs> as you drift in and out of consciousness. Uh, and you probably no, have some weird dreams going on. Yeah, <laughs> I really did. I was really kind of tortured. Uh, but no, it's amazing. All right. Uh, now, before we get into our in-depth discussion, Todd, do you have a summary of The Man Who Buried Himself? I do. Which, I mean, really, you uh, you could just read this and it would probably take five minutes. This is even shorter than the Yellow Wallpaper <laughs> listeners. Really and is. we do recommend that you go read the full text as well. Yes. Okay, here we go. The man who buried himself. So the narrator tells us that one day his once jovial friend Emilio suddenly became melancholy. And then the narrator, concerned, asks Emilio what happened to him. And Emilio agrees to tell his story, but swears the narrator to keep it secret until he, Emilio, has died once more. Uh, so the, uh, this is a, a quote, so died once more, uh, the walk into Emilio, they walk into Emilio's office where the narrator examines Emilio's huge leather armchair. Then Emilio has the narrator sit in a chair opposite him and Emilio himself sits in the armchair telling the narrator that he won't believe what he is about to tell him, but it, that it will be a burden to get it off. Uh, it will be, um, a relief to get this burden off of his chest. Then Emilio tells his story a year and a half earlier. He says, he, Emilio, was overcome by a feeling of dread. He knew that death was after him. Then one day, it came. Emilio woke up in terror. He prepared himself to die of fear. He shut himself in his office and began to call upon death, which naturally came. As Emilio sat with his head in his hands, he heard the door open and felt a man walk into the room and stand in front of Emilio. And then when Emilio finally opened his eyes, he saw that the man standing in front of him was himself. 
like a reflection in a mirror that detaches itself from the person standing in front of it. So the so the eye that's so the self that's there's an there's an outside Emilio standing, and then there's this what he calls the inside eye, the inside self that's him sitting in this chair, and then the standing Emilio sat down. Uh, put his elbows on the table and his head on his in his hands, just as the narrator is sitting now, as Emilio tells the story. So there they were, Emilio and his other self, staring at each other across this table. And then the feeling of terror completely overcame Emilio. He fell to the ground. Uh, he felt the ground going out from under his feet and the chair vanishing. And then he heard the other Emilio whisper, "Emilio," and then he died. After a while, he came to his senses. Emilio was sitting exactly where the other Emilio had been, contemplating himself sitting in the other chair where he had just been sitting. His consciousness, his spirit, had passed from one body to the other, and he saw himself, the self that had been dead, pale and rigid. So the terror he had felt moments before has now been replaced uh, with this deep feeling of sadness. Uh, He got up, he checked the pulse of his dead self, he went out to the garden and dug a ditch, telling a dog who sat watching... We don't understand anything that happens, my friend. And when you come down to it, this is no more mysterious than anything else. At this, (laughs) (laughs) so good. Just such a statement for what has just happened in the story. At this, uh, the narrator scoffs and says, that's way too much philosophy for a dog. But then Emilio challenges him and says, he understands the whole thing just as little as the dog. The world, says Emilio, is a hallucination. The only difference being that some hallucinations have more practical effect on us than others. Then he invites the narrator into the garden where he starts to dig with a pickaxe and reveals buried there the skull and part of the shoulders of a human corpse. Emilio points to it and exclaims, look at me. The narrator begins to shake and Emilio asks, what's wrong? Do you think I'm a criminal? To which the narrator replies, I don't believe anything. Then Emilio says, quote, Now that's the truth. You don't believe in anything, and because you don't believe in anything, you cannot understand anything, starting with the most simple things. You, all of you who consider yourselves sane, have no instruments at hand besides logic, and that is why you live in the dark. Close quote. Uh, After this, the narrator avoids Emilio because his presence unnerves him. Uh, Understandably so. (laughs) (laughs) Though he never shows any signs of craziness. He only scoffs at logic and reality. And eventually, Emilio writes a treatise on hallucinations in which he states, logic is a social institution, and that which is called madness is a completely private thing. If we could read into the souls of the people who surround us, we would see that we live enshrouded in a world of murky yet palpable mysteries. The end. Well done, Todd. Um, I had no idea we were going to be on a doppelganger kick (laughs) on the protagonist podcast when we, uh, again, we had the prestige last week and now these two stories this week, which we kind of chose not knowing what the other one was choosing. Boy, do they dovetail nicely. So should we we take a moment and talk about doppelgangers? Sure. Yeah. Uh, I love a good doppelganger story. I don't know why. They just, uh, they, they tend to work as one of the uh, creepy things uh, that, um, you know, gothic gothic romantics really um, clung to and has kind of remained as a thread through, you know, all the different literary movements ever since as something that just mm-hmm. is going to resonate with the audience as um, something other, something unnatural. Um, and we have two very different kinds of doppelgangers present in these two sh- short stories. Um, in the yellow wallpaper, it's this other woman initially that she sees in the wallpaper. And then she begins to identify with the woman. And then she begins to believe she is the woman that has now escaped from the wallpaper. And then the man who buried himself, it's just the straight up, the mirror comes alive kind of doppelganger. <laughs> Um, yeah i mean not, not like a sense of familiarity familiarity or similarity it is just this is me <laughs> this one is is completely me and then he he also yeah. becomes that doppelganger yes this yeah. is where the story is really quite different from any other doppelganger story <laughs> <laughs> that i'm uh, with which i'm familiar where uh his consciousness jumps to the new body yes 
and, this and is the moment that I that I imagine happening in the Prestige. Yes, this is what I was going to say. In the Prestige, almost uh, we didn't really have a lot of time in that discussion to delve into this because the summary was so intense for that. Much less intense <laughs> summary for, for these two short stories. I think we covered two stories in a quarter of the time it took to try and summarize the Prestige easily last week. Um, but in the Prestige, there's this question of every time this double is created uh, of the Hugh Jackman character, which one is the real um what's his character's name uh, uh danton uh, uh, danton yes yeah which one is the, the real? great danton what's his name danton or algier angier angier, angier. robbie <laughs> um and we know one of them dies and one of them lives and the one that lives continues on with this scheme 100 times to kill a duplicate of himself so even if it's not the original it's a good enough copy that you know the desire to carry out this mad scheme um lives on through 100 deaths of himself uh but it it is kind of the haunting question of that is who who's the real danton is there a real danton anymore right uh with these and uh the man who buried himself you know written in what was it 1908 is that what it was 19 yes 1908 it's kind of getting into a similar similarly uh you know gothic doppelganger kind of question as well yeah i think the doppelganger works so well i mean i think freud would say that the doppelganger works so well because it creates this um amazing feeling of uh the uncanny unheimlich right Mm -hmm. so it's the thing that is uh familiar and yet different and it's, um, I mean, we get the, we get this shift in consciousness, but really the, the very beginning of the story, and it's a framed story, which I also, um, I really love a good framed story. Uh, and the narrator is recognizing that, fe- that feeling of uncanny as he looks at his friend and he says, I know he's the same. And yet he, he's different enough that I know that something is up and, um, it's like, I know that there's something that I don't know. And that's, uh, that's what drives him to ask the question to which Emilio's like, I really don't think you want to know. Yeah. And then he says, no, I really do. And by the end, he's just shaking in his boots because, you know, his world has been rocked basically yeah. uh, by this thing. And so, uh, so it is different from other uncanny, um, uh, I mean, uh, doppelganger stories in that you have this uh, shift in consciousness from one body to the other. But I think it's not so different in that uh, it's the thing that is the, the thing that is so familiar um, as familiar as your reflection in the mirror or as familiar as your best friend. And yet, you know, that there's something that's not right. Yeah. The, this, um, there's a few places where like curiosity gets mentioned in um, Unamuno's story. And one of them is, I think a really good encapsulation of the literary sense of the sublime. I mean, that's a term that gets tossed around now. Like you can buy lime sublime <laughs> flavored shakes. <laughs> and we just think yes. really good is sublime, but in the literary sense, the term it used to mean, uh, or traditionally has meant like a simultaneous awe and terror like um, Uh a desire to see and a fear of seeing that happens at the same time. And that's what the Gothic romantics were were famous for really being able to create in the reader is this like the need to turn the page, even though you're terrified of what's going to be on the next page Uh um, in the story. And um, let's see the, the few times it gets mentions in here. uh, Let's see. It says, I was about to beg him to make a confession, but curiosity was stronger than pity. And they say that curiosity is one of the things most likely to make a man cruel. So we get curiosity being brought up there. And then it also says mm-hmm. that his, I was tempted to flee, but curiosity overcame fear. And then the last time it says he began to dig it while I remained glued to the ground. This is always digging up the corpse. I remained glued, glued to the ground by a strange feeling, a combination of terror and curiosity. And mm-hmm. uh, that, that combination of terror and curiosity is, it it gets created so well in this. Um, and this is what I want to tie into a bit with something that uh, producer Andrew was bringing up a little bit earlier. Um, Poe's theory of composition, mm-hmm. where there's a few different th- um, aspects of that. Um, one, which makes the short story so, so satisfying in Poe's mind is that a, a well-told story should be able to be consumed in one sitting. Like you should never have to leave the feeling that the story is putting in you to go live life and then come back to the story. <laughs> so for him, a novel is too long. 
Um, okay. Uh, because uh, the the work of the author is to create a feeling in the reader, and if you have to stop reading because you need to go to the bathroom, even or because you have to you have to go to work, or because you have to go to sleep, the spell of between the author and the reader is broken, and a short story is perfect because you're allowed to consume the entire thing and the entire effect uh, that the author is trying to create um, on the reader in one sitting. And Poe also said that um, the goal of the author should be to create a unity of effect in every choice that they make in terms of what their plot is going to be, in terms of what descriptions they're going to use, in terms of the tone um, of the piece. It's to create a unity of effect, which is, again, this spell that gets cast over the reader. What is the mm-hmm. feeling and the emotion? And both of these short stories for me make a very good um, or are very good examples of that sublime feeling. Uh, you know, the simultaneous, oh, yeah. like, can't look away curiosity, but also terror and discomfort. Um, and I think the doppelganger absolutely fits into that mold as well. I mean, it's the, there, there'd be the fascination in seeing a duplicate of yourself right in front of you, but there'd also be the uh, undeniable, like, creepiness of this should not be. <laughs> yes. And this, I think this gets to the heart of Unamuno's um, philosophy. There's a, a quote by Unamuno that says, those who believe, they believe in God, but without passion in the heart, without uncertainty, without doubt, and even at times without despair, believe only in the idea of God and not in God himself. And there's something fundamental to like the experience of, um, of, of life and the experience of the divine that is that. I mean, it should be, I think Unamuno is saying, sublime. It should, you should be deeply curious about God and also terrified at, at, uh, at his existence. And if you don't, then you really don't know anything about God. I, I think in some ways, the, the discussion that we can have about these stories, it can become really, I think, fruitful for us to, to do some comparison and contrasting because there's, there's definite similarities in terms of the feelings mm-hmm. that they elicit. Also, like we said, there's, there's doppelgangers um, happening in both. Um, but if I was like going to dig into themes for yellow wallpaper, and some of this is obviously coming from what Gilman said in her life, but pretty obviously there's a, um, a feminist element and some symbolism uh, about the woman in the cage behind the wall. Um, the, the treatment of women at the time where um, like even discussing depression at the time from what i understand could lead to women being labeled as hysterics and being (laughs) yeah you know like it wasn't believed that the issue was that they were actually depressed it was that they were so hysterical that they didn't know what was happening to themselves (laughs) (laughs) um and i think the fact that this is set in that room with the yellow wallpaper which is explicitly identified as this must have been a child's room before that's not an accident Mm -hmm. Right? The, no. when it's the way that she's being treated and the way that she's being talked to by her husband, which her husband is so patronizing in this. Yeah. And um, so sure of his knowledge of what will heal her that, you know, she shouldn't, she shouldn't write. She shouldn't think um, she just needs to lay <laughs> basically and, and check her mind out. And that is what's going to heal her. Um, which is of course, as we see, you know, driving her further and further um, into into this break from reality um, and into her, her obsession with the wallpaper. So I think there's a lot of really interesting symbolism in the yellow wallpaper that stands quite apart from the symbolism that's there in the man who buried himself. The more I think about the yellow wallpaper, the more I'm just fascinated with the structure that she, the way that she structures the symbol in um, like the bars on the windows and like, you know, the woman behind the pattern, it's, uh, it's just, it um it creates this this beautiful kind of mental puzzle. Yes. Um that I I don't know that there's a way to unravel it completely. Um mm-hmm. but it's it's really power I mean it's really powerful writing. And uh reading it, I don't know. I, I mean I wonder what it would have been like for, you know, her doctor or her husband to read it in 1890, what was it, 92? 92 or 98, depending on which online source I found. Okay. (laughs) But I mean, to read it then, I wonder what the, I wonder what the, that experience would have been like, because for us now, we understand depression so much better. And postpartum depression. And especially postpartum depression. But, but also, I mean, even today, there's something of mystery in depression. Right. I mean, and, and it's, it's still, there's a taboo element where it doesn't get spoken of uh, with the frankness that it, it needs. Uh-huh. Um, or even as a legitimate 
disease, right? Where where you still know that there are people out there who are suffering from legitimate depression who are being told essentially, well, choose not to be depressed. Yeah. Is what she's being told by her husband. Well, just stop doing that yeah. and you'll be fine. <laughs> stop it. Stop it or I'll bury you alive in a box. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, but yeah, I mean, I think there is there is still there. I mean, with all of the with all of the advances that we've that we've made, and they're significant, and the ability that we have to talk about it now, which is significant, there's still there's still mystery and taboo sur- surrounding this thing, and uh, there's so much that we don't understand. And I think that even psychiatrists and psychologists would tell you the same thing. <laughs> there's there there are I mean there are times when a doctor can look at it and say, yep, I understand what's going on here. Uh, but a lot of the time, I mean, I've talked to doctors talking about depression and they're like, we can try some medication and see what happens. <laughs> like, really? That's your best? Yeah. Well, you know, we'll try, we'll try something and see how it goes. And then if it works great. And if, if it makes it worse, then we'll try something different. I'm like, wow. <laughs> we really, um, I mean, it's just a, it's a, it's a tricky thing. And, um, I've been thinking about, I've been thinking a lot about, um, this term semantic field, the, um, the semantic field is like the, all of the words that we use when we talk about a thing. So there's a semantic field associated with depression, for example. Um, and often, uh, the, I mean, a semantic fields can change over time. So obviously in in the time of um of the yellow wallpaper the semantic field the words that people use to describe depression were very different from uh the words that they use today because that semantic field has shifted over time um and i think one of the things i've been i've been thinking about this in terms of autism but i think it also uh it it fits really well here is that w- something that authors can do that doctors don't really do um, because it's not their job, and that's fine, because <laughs> they both have different things, is that authors are able to expand a semantic field and give us new ways to talk about really difficult things. And I, and I think that this is a really great example of that, of, of an author expanding the semantic field and saying, you, you talk about this in terms of hysteria. Um, let me give you a few more words to describe <laughs> what's going on here. And she does it in such a powerful, I mean, really powerful way. Um, and I, 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 I think it's one of the reasons why we write literature. I really like that. Um, and I think it's a really good point about how far this has come, like to the point where now when I've assigned this to read, like one of the very first things that always comes up when my students are discussing this is postpartum depression, which wasn't even a term, you know, when, when when this was, was written and now that has entered the, as what was the term you were using? The, um. The semantic, the semantic field. field of uh, depression and of even a childbirth uh, so much that it's easily identifiable for a modern audience looking with 2018 eyes at this 1898 story um, to identify something mm-hmm. that the doctors of the day couldn't. You know, these lay students who are 18, 19, 20 year olds um, can identify it because the conversation has shifted so greatly. Mm-hmm. Um, also, you yeah. you mentioned something that I, I thought was really um an interesting avenue for us to explore for a moment. You said she kind of presents in her writing a puzzle for us to, to kind of start piecing together. Um, and I love yes. the way that in this writing, this first person writing of a journal, which again, I think it works all the way till the very end when she's crawling over the husband's body. At that point, it's like, who's writing a journal? At this point? <laughs> <laughs> it does. It does break down at the very end a little bit. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, but she starts to give clues that um, don't quite pay off until you are like looking back at it. So she, she talks about like the smudge on the wallpaper and then it's like a couple journal Mm -hmm. entries later. I think it's that, um, Jenny, the, the husband's sister mentions that she's, that the, the narrator is getting yellow on her, her, on her clothes and was wondering how that's happening. Mm -hmm. Um, and also like the smell following her around the house. And like, at that point you haven't been given the information that she crawls around this room (laughs) on the floor, um, Mm -hmm. explicitly, but you can start to put these things together and understand that this is an unreliable narrator who is not telling us, I mean, not just because of the fact that she's seeing a woman trapped in wallpaper, but she's unreliable in describing her actions during the day. Um, And and so Mm -hmm. I I thought that was really interestingly presented to us as a reader. Yes. 
I was just remembering the one of the things that I most love about the story is that it uses um, synesthesia. Mm-hmm. The and I just love a I love a good use of synesthesia when mm-hmm. when uh, when an author uses uh, one sense to describe another sense. <laughs> and I'm trying to find that she she builds up to it smelling yellow. Yes, yes, it and smells she, yellow. She builds up to it for like an entire paragraph or two. So good, mm-hmm. so good. I love that. Because you know exactly what uh, it, you know exactly what she means, even though you can't. She does such a great job of describing what's going on that when she says it, it's the only way to describe it is to say that it smells yellow, and you're like, "Yep, I get it." <laughs> and she says it's the strangest yellow that wallpaper. It makes me think of all the yellow things I ever saw, not beautiful ones like buttercups, but old, foul, bad yellow things. And that description yes. is like, "Oh, I know that yellow." <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, and then she. When she's describing the colors, at one point she talks about one of the colors being like sulfur, which mm-hmm. immediately evokes a, a smell sense as mm-hmm. as well yep. as a visual sense. You know, a sulfuric yeah. yellow, you get what that means on multiple levels. Mm-hmm. Yeah. and um, uh, But also that description of the smell, she says, you know, when she's allowed to go outside and I go on a ride, if I turn my head suddenly, surprise, there's that smell. Like by the end, you can go back and say, oh, it's because it's on her the shoulder of her dress because she's rubbing against the wallpaper. Right. But at the at that moment, it's almost like, is this is there something supernatural about this wallpaper? Uh-huh. Um, and so it just all gets presented so well in this. Uh, both these stories, okay. like I finished reading them and I, and like I wanted to do that, that um, the, the chef. <laughs> like this was just... <laughs> So pleasant to read. One sitting in these like 15, 20 minutes, just such a great story that created that unity of effect that Poe was writing about where these authors masterfully made us feel exactly what they wanted to feel. You're in their thrall. Um, and, you know, somehow I magically didn't even have my kids come knock on my door. Like I could just engage with this story <laughs> for yeah. uh, for the length it took to reach everything the author wanted to show me. Yeah, for me, it's a sigh. When I get to the end of something like this and you you, you get to the last word and you just go, oh, man. It's like, it was so good. Uh, yeah, it's amazing. I smiled to myself finishing each of these. <laughs> it, it just like look out of the window or look out at the room you're in and just give a little smile. I didn't, I didn't quite sigh, but that same sort of sense. Um, yeah, Joseph, I wanted to ask. Yeah, go ahead. When you were talking about the supernatural element in the yellow wallpaper, I think that like you can read it and there's a version of reading it where there is a supernatural element and Mm -hmm. the evidence that in one reading is that she's doing all this stuff and she's not talking about it. But then she talks about it at the end. You're like, oh, she's been doing this all the time. She's been chewing on the bed. She's been walking around the she's been crawling around the bottom of the wallpaper and all those things. Um but there's also a version where everything she's talking about at the beginning is evidence like this wallpaper has driven more than one person crazy because mm-hmm. she's yeah. like in this nursery. And it's like, <laughs> have kids been chewing on this bed? She talks about it. It might have been like the the estate might have been a school and they may have had like mm-hmm. a bunch of students in there. And there's like there's rings for chains or something on the walls. Which yeah, isn't really no, explained yeah, she does at any time. She throws out some of those descriptions without really explaining them that just kind of leave you feeling uneasy and, about this room. And like the sense that you get from the entire estate is like, this is a weird place. Is it haunted? Yeah. Is something yeah. up? Like, it, it, has it been driving people crazy for a while? I mean, it's very much the Poe um, move of aligning the physical space where someone is living with their mental state, right? So the fall of House of Usher with the crumbling estate and their mm-hmm. crumbling mental states. And when they finally completely crack, that's when the house literally breaks apart. Um, so you're definitely getting that uh, that element. And like you said, you could like you you could read this as like there are like the souls of previous tenants are trapped in that wallpaper and she's doing her darndest to free them. Because <laughs> because she also has like this, like when you think about it, like I, I didn't think about it while reading it until it, and then when I was done reading, it, I was like, there's some creepy, creepy imagery that she talks about other people being trapped in the wallpaper and trying to climb through and being strangled and their heads flopping down and, and looking at her through the pattern. Yes. Like, yeah. The, the eyes and the pattern. It's weird. Like it. It's weird. Yes. yes. Agreed. I love it so much. Oh, <laughs> short stories uh, can be so good. 
Yes. And I think we've done a good job of taking apart some of the symbolism in the yellow wallpaper. Todd, is there anything that stood out to you in the man who buried himself as far as kind of some of Unomuno's, uh, you know, moves to create that unity of effect, uh, both thematically and also in how it feels to read the story? It's very, it's written, I mean, for all of the similarities between this and, I mean, we pointed them out, like their lives essentially overlap each other. And we've, they're both dealing with doppelgangers and um, there's a lot of similarities here. Their writing style, I think, is very different. <laughs> um, uh, I, I think I like, uh, one of the things that I like about the yellow wallpaper are these descriptions and this is a masterful use of, um, adjective and description in general, I think is, uh, is really good. And I think absent in Unamuno's writing, he's more of a, there are some writers that I consider them first and foremost philosophers, uh, who just happen to write their philosophy and stories. And I think that's absolutely what Unamuno is. Um, Borges is another great example of that. Javier Marias, who's a contemporary Spanish writer is also a lot like this. Um, which is not to say that their stories aren't interesting, uh, but they're just, um, or that, or, or, or that they don't know how to use language, which they do. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it, in fact, they do it, uh, incredibly well. They just are, it's, it's kind of like they set out to do something different. And there's a, there's a part in, um, the man who buried himself where it talks about tone and timber. And I think that, um, for the similarities that these stories share, I think there's something different in the way that Unamuno writes, um, and that it feels more philosophical than um, than the other story. Yeah. I think. Uh, I agree. Well, well there's like the, more the, explicit discussion of idea, right? Yeah, and that's really what the story is about. I mean, the story is an excuse for Unamuno to uh, explore this one: the idea of consciousness and what is it. And secondly, and for me, maybe more, more interestingly in this story is just this idea of wonder and mystery. And, um, I mean, there are these, th those quotes that I read, the one, the, the one that it ends with logic is a social institution. And that which is called madness is a completely private thing. If we could read into the souls of the people who surround us, we would see that we live enshrouded in a world of murky yet palpable mysteries. Um, and then, uh, the, uh, uh poor, crazy fools, you Picture the world as a puzzle or a hieroglyph, and you have to find the solution. No, my friend, no. This has no solution. This is no riddle, nor does it have anything to do with symbolism. It happened just as I have told you, and if you don't want to believe me, so be it. And um, I think uh, I think it's really important to have um, balance between uh, – I mean, there's a way to look at the history of the world that it can be kind of a swing between um, – like Goombrecht that Stanford calls this uh, meaning culture and presence culture. And so you have like the Greeks and the Romans, those are meaning cultures where they're really interested in finding meaning and they believe that meaning exists. And that if we just use our brains, we can figure stuff out. And the Romans and the Greeks, they were really quite good at this. <laughs> and then we get into medieval times, which Goombrecht would call a presence culture, which is dominated by the body and uh, dominated by great questions that that point at the difficulty of fininging meaning in in the universe that the, the universe is mysterious it's huge and so we should build ginormous cathedrals that make us feel small because we are because the universe is mysterious uh, and then you get the Renaissance where people say no no no, no. we can figure this out we got the we got Aristotle and Plato. We can totally figure this out. And you see the swing back to meaning culture. And then you move into the Baroque. And the Baroque is all, uh, it's a presence culture. It's about asking all of the hardest questions, knowing that probably none of them can really be answered to, to our satisfaction. But it's really important to feel the sense of wonder and mystery about the world. And then we swing into neoclassicism and people saying, no, 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 no. Like, we got this. We're really okay in the enlightenment. And then you swing into romanticism and you get this and it just goes back and forth. And I think that so much of, I mean, for me, the intellectual life is so much about trying to strike a balance between those two things and always checking one with the other. And when I feel like I understand the world, I need to read Unamuno to have me say, you crazy fool. You think you know everything <laughs> and yet you know nothing. And, and if I read too much Unamuno, 
or Poe or yellow wallpaper, then I need to go read Aristotle again <laughs> and have him say, no, our brains are pretty amazing things. And there's a lot about this world that we can, that we can understand. And, um, and I, I just, I think, I don't think that a story like, uh, like the man who buried himself should be the only thing that we read, but I think it's a really important part of, uh, keeping a balanced view of the world and, uh, and of the big questions. Todd, your, your discussion about like the, the balancing act going back and forth between what I would call thinking periods and feeling periods, you know, Renaissance versus Romanticism and all those things. It reminded me of um, Uh (laughs) a little gag. So there's a podcast, which I don't even know if it's available because at some point I think it became a a pay only podcast. It was called the dead authors podcast. And the premise was that a comedian performing as um, the author of the time machine actually had a time machine and he was bringing literary figures from all over time who were dead. Jules Verne or H.G. Wells? Which one is it? H.G. Wells. Um, and, and so he's bringing other literary figures up who are just being played by comedians and they were just doing improv comedy for like an hour that was being recorded in front of an audience. And I think it was an episode where he had someone on who was playing, um, Oh, uh, help me leaves of grass. Walt Whitman, Walt Whitman. And Walt Whitman is just going crazy. Like it it is a phenomenal thing to listen to. Because he's basically he's just doing Walt Whitman at the audience constantly, <laughs> um, and and just taking anything and doing improv comedy Walt Whitman style. But at one point, H.G. Um, Wells was trying to ask a question to the audience to to get their take on something, and he said, "How many people think?" And he was pausing to like get the rest of the thought because he was going to think that we should you know whatever. And Walt Whitman just interrupts him, right. but we should feel. And so he changes. Like, okay, audience, how many people think? Full stop. And he gets applause from the audience. How many people feel? <laughs> and so just like that nice. interruption is like, how many people think? But we should feel like that interruption. I think represents the the back and forth that you were talking about. Yeah, it really does. And um, I mean, there is great, great literature uh, and art from both of mm-hmm. these. Uh, both sides of the spectrum and and great from one side because there was great from the other side i mean i really think that these are these are yin and yang and we need both of them and so often we see uh if you look at any given moment um you'll see one thing as a rejection of the other thing um but i think it's so important to have to have them both and when i read unamuno i don't lose you don't lose hope that there's anything knowable or worth knowing. Uh, but he always kind of keeps me humble <laughs> about, uh, about the limits of, um, of my own knowledge and, and even my, the limits of my ability to, um, to fully comprehend the vastness of the universe and the, um, the infinite nature of God. And what that really well, I mean, I, early on in this podcast, I, I said both of these are kind of late for the romantics, but uh, you definitely feel Gothic romanticism in both of them. Uh, in American literature, it swings from the transcendentalists and the romantics who are all about feeling, obviously. Uh, then we, we're going to get uh, into some regionalism that kind of rides the line between two different eras. And then we're heading straight into realism. <laughs> and this is kind of in the, yeah. in the realist uh, era. Like this is a, la- these are kind of like last vestiges of the romantics um, or Charlotte Perkins Gilman is as we're heading into the, like the stark realists, <laughs> like the pendulum is swinging and she's still hanging out on this other end um, in terms of this short story. Obviously like she's, She's dealing, uh, you know, she has lots of other writings um, that are going on. This is just her most iconic. Um, but it feels like it belongs a couple decades earlier because so much of the literary movement of the time is heading into realism and naturalism. Yeah. And Unamuno, um, I mean, his most famous, his most famous novel is called Mist, uh, Niebla. Um, and it's super good. And we should talk about <laughs> it on this podcast. But uh, it reads um, a lot like just a regular realist novel um and then he completely turns everything on its head in like the last 
10 pages or something. <laughs> and it becomes something completely different and um, incredible. And so I, I, I mean, I, I get what you're saying about that. It feels earlier than it is, but I, but I think that Unamuno, I mean, I always imagine Unamuno at the end of realism, oh, yeah. uh, 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 taking realism and flipping it back on, back on its head. Mm-hmm. Well, and in a, in a way trying to, you know, it's almost pigeonholing to say that, you know, any one author belongs to any one movement because yeah. they're capable of expressing, you know, both the thinking and the feeling they can, you know, they can write one thing that yeah. says, Hey, we can logic this out and figure out the universe. And one thing that says, no, the universe is unknowable and, and we need to just feel. Yeah. And all of these um, like identifiers of literary movements, this is looking back retrospectively and saying, what are the major trends we're seeing? There's always gonna be outliers, um, you know, within those mm-hmm. things that are published that certainly don't, don't fit that mold. And in that looking back, it's always painting with a pretty broad brush to say, well, this is the literary movement. <laughs> this is what's happening in, in right. uh, you know, the 1890s is, you know, we're heading, you know, into realism. <laughs> and of course there are things that don't, don't fit you know, check the boxes of realism that are published during what is considered the larger realist era. Yeah. I think, um, yeah. I was just thinking about this and I, I thought you get the same thing with discussion right now of like film and TV where they're not using the same terminologies of, mm-hmm. you know, um, romanticism, realism, modernism, postmodernism, uh, and naturalism, all those kinds of things. But people talk about and, and have arguments about whether, you know, TV and movies and entertainment should be making us think hard. Like, it, should it be a, a, a difficult thought process or should it be? a feeling, an emotional, you know, popcorn experience. And you have think pieces on the internet about both of those. And I'm sure if you look back through the history of, of film and, and modern entertainment, if you look at all the Oscar winners, you could probably find trends where it's like, oh, this is a thinker, this is a feeler, this is a thinker, this is a feeler. And, and things are recognized yeah, and as, I think, you know, the best I, I work mean- of, of that time in both categories. Yeah, and I brought up the the presence culture, meaning culture thing. I think it's important to point out, especially in Unamuno's case, that Unamuno is, um, I mean, he's not so into, he is interested in having a, a sense of wonder and a sense of the sublime, but he's also f- very interested in the idea of belief and, and, and striking a contrast between belief and logic. And that that we we ultimately logic is um is not enough to get us to where unamuna wants to go and what we really need is belief and that's why he he says it a couple of times you just um like if you don't want to believe me so be it but it happened just like i told you and uh and when he, oh he says um the the narrator says i don't believe anything and then uh, Emilio says, that's the truth. You don't believe in anything. And because you don't believe in anything, you can't understand anything, starting with the most simple things. And, uh, and so it is, it is about feeling. It's about feeling the sublime. It's about feeling the sense of wonder. Um, but it's also about believing in something that is not logical. And that, that belief is... Uh, it's a powerful, it's a powerful thing, and it, it is emotional, but it's also not, not also cerebral. I think, I, I think saying not logical is not the same as saying not using your brain. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I've, I don't know if I've, that's clear. So I, the, the <laughs> next line from the narrator in uh, the man who buried himself is, "All right, fine. So what does this all mean, or or what does all this mean?" And the response is, "Oh, that mm-hmm. you're looking for a resolution or the moral, and poor crazy fools. <laughs> like that's just, it's just not going to happen." Um, right. <laughs> but do you think in that discussion of belief, is there? what's what's uno meaning uh, uno muno's feeling about meaning as well <laughs> besides uh you know saying well you don't you don't believe in anything so you can't understand it like does it require if you have belief do you then understand or is what do you think he's getting at here <laughs> i don't know i don't know i don't know if uno muno really knows what he's getting at exactly um but but i think that he sees a power in the universe that he calls god that goes beyond the kind of one-to-one logical sort of m- methodical thinking through things. I mean, he was a philosopher. Yeah. 
he knew philosophy. He read it. He read it all. He understood logic. When he says logic, he knows exactly what he's talking about. He's talking about taking an argument and going step by step by step, and then finally at the end saying, "Ergo, X." Right? Like being able to prove something by a series of steps that lead you logically from 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 one to the other. And he's saying there is a power in the universe that's that he calls God, and he says logic just can't get us there. It can't get us to any kind of understanding of that. Um, and, and I think that he's using understanding not in the way that, um, that we, um, I mean, he's using understanding like, uh, like Heisenberg talks about it in his, in his memoirs. He talks about knowledge versus understanding and that like mathematics and science can give us knowledge, but they can't really give us understanding that we need literature and poetics to give us a different kind of knowledge about the universe. And, um, and it's, it's just a different way of, of approaching things. And it's not done by logic. It's not done by math and science. And those are important tools and they can teach us a lot about the universe, but we need this other thing that, that we call understanding that it's just different. And the, the, the tools that we use to get there are different. And literature seems far more capable of getting him at least closer to, to, this, to this idea of God than, than the logic that he's trained to use as a philosopher. I don't know if that's satisfying at all. but and That's why you need a well-rounded <laughs> education with the humanities, everyone, right there. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so that you can say what you think someone might be saying, even though you're not sure they know what they were saying. <laughs> uh, any final thoughts on these? Yeah, but that's yeah. what it's about. I mean, it's about recognizing that there are things in the world that are that are really beyond us and yet completely worthy of our attention. <laughs> <laughs> and we have to be really humble about those things. Because the last thing we want to do is just shut off and say, well, if it's not understandable, then, or if it's not knowable, then I'm not even going to bother with it. And Unamuno would say, no, that, that, that's bother why with you must it. engage. <laughs> and, and Todd, that you goes back to one of the earliest thing. things you were talking about with depression. Scientifically, we can't get a perfect handle on it. And we're still, and, we're still working I, through it, right? I mean, I don't know that science is ever going to get a perfect handle on it. But it's something that can be approached in some cases with a science and in some cases with a psychology thing, which and through the psychology element and, and talking through it, sometimes that becomes a philosophical thing, which can also mean that it's an emotional thing. You know, it's all it's all tied together. And if there was an easy right. answer, we'd have it and we'd use it for everyone and no one would have depression ever again. But there's not an easy answer. I think when you're facing something as daunting as depression, that you want as big a semantic field as you can. You want to have as many ways to approach it and think about it and words to use to describe it as you possibly can. And I think that's why it's super important that we have literature that deals specifically with those things. And because it gives us a, a, a different way to approach it. And it's not to say that it's a better way. But my goodness, when you're facing when you're facing that abyss, um, any tool that you can have at your disposal that even gives you a chance of facing it, because man, depression, that's a worthy <laughs> adversary. <laughs> and you want to have you want to have every weapon at your disposal when you're trying to fight that beast because it's it's real and it's uh, it is sometimes um, I mean seemingly and, and impossible some of those weapons are pharmaceutical and and treating you know the the chemical balance um that our brains need to maintain and some of those weapons are emotional and and you know verbal therapy of talking about things and developing mental tools to help balance those chemicals and some are and some are poetic i think i mean i think poetics has a role in uh, in that whole in well, that and, whole conversation art, like there's all kinds yeah, of therapies of- there's oh, yeah. you know artistic therapies musical therapies you know and and yep there's all kinds of things that people can do in life that can be weapons against depression and we're, um, we're narrowing this down to just talking about depression but this is everything social anxiety um you know <laughs> marital issues you know every knowable and unknowable 
thing that has all of these deep facets. Yeah, and I mean, in some ways, it's uh, so in in Unamuno's Man Who Buried Himself, like he tells the story, and you know, the author kind of or, or the narrator is saying, "Well, I, I can't believe this," and the <laughs> Emilio says, "Well, it is," and I think that is how like jump connecting this with um charlotte perkins gilman uh or uh yeah charlotte gilman and depression and the way she gets treated by her husband she like even she even hints about like this emotional lack of health he says well no don't talk about that because that gives you license to feel that and we don't want you to feel that <laughs> and, and so it's you can almost know, like she needs to say well it is <laughs> like it is <laughs> like, like this is the truth of my experience right now and you're choosing not to believe it you're choosing not to accept it um, it's a connection that I certainly didn't make about these two stories, but your your conversation is kind of triggered for me. Yeah, cool. I'm really glad that we had oh, this conversation. And uh, it, I, I, it, I guess it's it's weird to say, but I'm kind kind of glad that the the next book we're covering was so long that we had to say, well, let's let's do a couple short stories <laughs> because we haven't plugged in very many short stories <laughs> into our discussion. I think the only other short story yeah. we covered was Murders in the Rue Morgue uh, by Poe. Um, but I think this was, this was a fruitful conversation. Uh, and so I'm, uh, like you, like you, I'm glad we had it. All right. That wraps up this episode. Thank you for joining us for show notes and links to all of the other great dueling genre shows. You can go to duelinggenre.com. Also, please subscribe to the protagonist podcast in your podcast app of choice. And please leave us a review that really helps us out. We would like to thank Nick English who designed our logo and Scott Tofty who composed our theme music. If you enjoyed this episode, you may want to go check out episode number 174. When we talked about the prestige, it's just one back in our feed right now uh or episode number 39 when we talked about murders in the room org a gothic uh romantic uh short story by by poe you can suggest stories or characters for us to discuss or give us any comments or corrections by emailing feedback at protagonistpodcast.com we're also on twitter you can follow protagonist pod you can follow todd k mack and you can follow uh, Jay Dorowski and our producer Andrew is at Disminute on Twitter. And our Facebook fan page is facebook.com slash protagonist podcast. We enjoy our conversation there with our listeners and we appreciate any feedback that you give us. Uh, if you would like to support the show financially, you can buy a topic for us to discuss or show your appreciation with a monetary donation by going to patreon.com slash protagonist. Thank you again for listening and we'll be back next week to discuss another great character in a great story. So long. So long. the yellow wallpaper. <clears throat> One more take, guys.